Hello and welcome to the Parkview podcast. I'm Paul Hoenk, investment analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Osama Himani, CIO of the firm. We're very excited for this week's guest. As one of the leading minds involved in the study and application of machine learning in the financial sector, Marcos Lopez de Prado needs very little by way of introduction. His combination of backgrounds as an investment manager, professor, and researcher means that he's very well positioned to provide unique insights into some of the more cutting-edge tools available to investors today. He's recently released Machine Learning for Asset Managers, a follow-up to the excellent advances in machine learning that came out in 2018. After a career spanning positions at top hedge funds and banks, Marcos founded True Positive Technologies, a research and advisory firm geared towards bringing asset management into the age of machine learning. We're very interested to discuss some of the more exciting themes in the space and how the tools and techniques proposed could be applicable to allocators. So let's get this started. Asama, over to you. Well, thank you for this introduction, Paul. I think um, at the personal level, I'd like to say that I've known Marcus for about 20 years. Since, uh, since the days he was at UBS, we both worked together between 2001 uh, and 2003 in the, in the strategy team of wealth management. Marcus at that time was the, was, was the head of quantitative investing and while I was heading the emerging markets team. So while there wasn't a lot of overlap in our work, we nonetheless enjoyed exchanging a lot of ideas. Marcus spotted an opportunity very early on in high frequency trading. And so he left UBS to join what was the cutting edge at that time in, in high frequency trading and then and was one of the pioneers in the field. He then went on to become a pioneer in machine learning. So we very, very much enjoy uh, having him with us today to, to help us demystify some of the big questions that really a lot of investors face in looking at this field. Now, quantitative driven investment processes can mean different things to different people. Individual investors may be exposed to different kinds of quant strategies, but the scope of the field is only fully understood by specialists. How would you, Marcus, categorize the current key sub-areas of quant investing for individual investors, and how, how do their methodologies differ from one another? Great question. Uh, quant um, and quants have evolved over the past uh, two decades enormously. Um, I remember when we uh, worked together at UBS, the main divide between quants was whether they were P quants or Q quants. So Q quants were the quants involved in option pricing and derivatives modeling, uh, while P quants were the quants involved in forecasting, modeling data. They were the experimentalists. And that divide has essentially uh, changed over the past uh, 20 years uh, when, uh, as a result of the financial crisis and the development of machine learning. Um, so with the financial crisis, the Q quants uh, ceased to be less relevant and um, everybody became an experimentalist. Um, why? Because of more powerful computers, uh, abundant data, data sets, and more advanced ma mathematics that allow us to apply uh, machine learning effectively. So today, the main divide between quants is essentially whether um, they utilize structured data 
or unstructured data. So the first kind of quant is the one that utilizes classical statistical methods to model essentially tables of data, data that is already well-conformed, well-ordered, um, all of the observations are aligned in time, etc. Um, the data is clean and it's numeric data. And on, that's essentially the area of econometrics. And then the second kind of quant is uh, machine learners. Those are the, the individuals that model unstructured data like um, satellite images, email uh, receipts, uh, recordings, uh, text. This is data that is not coming in a, in a table. You cannot uh, open it in Excel. You cannot upload it into MATLAB. And that's essentially the main divide today uh, between um, individuals that use traditional data sets and individuals that utilize the, the more cutting edge or more complex data sets. And in a way, just to, just to follow up on that, I, I think this evolution is also a function of alpha, if you want, or the ability to, for, for traditional methods to work properly is, is diminishing, right? Yes, uh, so uh, that's spot on. Traditional data sets have very little alpha left. Yeah. Why? Because they're relatively easy to model, um, they are accessible, they are standardized, and as a result, it is the trodden path. Everybody has access to them and can try and develop strategies. So the alpha, what I call macroscopic alpha, is extinguished, is gone. Uh, but microscopic alpha is more abundant than ever. Why? Because um, on one hand, you have uh, data sets that were not available before, and that are very difficult to manipulate, they are very difficult to model. So that creates, that gives you access to opportunities that were not accessible before. So that's on one hand. And on the other hand, you have uh, the errors made by the, the in funds and the quants that still utilize the old techniques and those errors can be exploited by um, machine learners. So as a result, microscopic alpha is more abundant than ever. Marcus, today's economies are generating quantities of data that were almost unimaginable in the past. Um, machine learning enables us to use this wealth of data in ways that have been inaccessible up until now. So what are the main implications of this for investors going forwards? The implications are enormous because now we have access to information that was not available before. And what is, why is information useful? Because, well, that's what allows us to make uh, decisions under uncertainty. There are essentially, when you boil it down, there are, to, to, to the basics, there are essentially four sources of alpha. One is risk premia, essentially investing in strategies that profit from undiversifiable under risks. The second one is asymmetric information, when you know some, something that someone else doesn't know, and that's where an structured data is extremely important. The third source of alpha is behavioral bias, when people make mistakes as a result of cognitive limitations. And that, again, is a situation where um, unstructured data is very useful. For instance, the analysis of text to extract sentiment and understand when people are behaving in a situation of panic, fear, greed, etc. And then the fourth source of alpha is um, limitations, constraints imposed on investors. 
even if investors are rational and informed and they are not subject to biases, still they will make mistakes as a result of um, limited access to liquidity or uh, they are forced to, to do something as a result of a regulatory requirement or they have a different investment horizon. So there are these four sources of alpha. And in every case, uh, uh, the answer to mine this alpha is unstructured data. This unstructured data comes in many forms, right? Uh, you can think of uh, individual investors' activity. Like, for instance, when you analyze fixed messages coming from the exchange in order to identify whether a trader is informed or uninformed. And that's the essence of high-frequency trading. The second kind of alternative data set is, is business processes. So information generated by uh, in, in manufacturing companies, exploration and production companies, retailers, etc. This is a staggering amount of data that you can mine in order to understand whether one company has an edge over another. And then the third kind of data is sensors, uh, satellite images, uh, uh, geopositional data, uh, data about crops uh, and all sorts of things. So um, uh, we saw very recently with COVID-19, sensors data was extremely useful, right? In order to identify disruptions in the supply chain as a result of COVID-19. Um, so the answer so is- how, how, how was it? Can you give us maybe an example, a concrete example of how, you know, what, what sort of data you, you spotted that you thought was particularly interesting in telling us how COVID-19 implications will pan out? Well, I think it was all over the place. When you think of, uh, on one hand, um, weeks before the market reached its peak, there were clear uh, signs of a slower demand in commodities, in copper prices in particular, but in commodities in general. Why? Because companies in China were not able to to uh, they had already the inventory, the, the copper wasn't being used, so they ceased to buy. So that's just an example. Another example is when you look at the statistics of the percentage of um, Tesla cars fully charged. <laughs> so that's another, that's another indication that people are not charging their cars because they, are, they don't need their cars, they are staying at home. Um, and this is indeed a type of data that was not accessible in the past, the, the Tesla exactly. charging. Yeah. Exactly. Look, if you, if you watch uh, CNBC, um, COVID-19 is, is a black swan. It comes out of nowhere, right? Because you're watching CNBC and the market keeps going up. Everybody's happy. And, and uh, even though you are hearing about um, the spread of the disease, everything seems like it's going to be blown away. And therefore, um, COVID-19 will be a black swan for the individual who is just watching TV, who is just watching the traditional channels. But if you all have access to unstructured data, you see the clear footprint of a disruption in the supply chain. And therefore, COVID-19 is not a black swan. That's why I am critical of individuals who pay so much attention to black swans, etc. The reality is that when you have information, nothing is a black swan. You, you are, when you have access to detailed information about the economy, you see everything coming. That doesn't mean that, you can, that you're going to predict that the pandemic is going to occur. That's not the point. 
The point is that when the pandemic is impacting the economic system, you will recognize it uh, very early on and therefore you don't suffer the, the consequences of, of you know, market, market uh, sell-offs, etc. And that's why I'm critical of um, people paying so much attention to, to the black swan idea. That's that's very interesting, and I think I I, I think the the, the uh, what what you're basically saying is is that this is reducing, this has enabled us to to access, you know, a, a much broader set of information, and be able to have a basically a real time view of how the economy is functioning. Yeah, in a, in, in, in a much more efficient way than, than we have in the past, right? Exactly. And therefore, manage your tail risk without having to pay a tremendous cost for uh, uh, out-of-the-money puts. Interesting. Now, how, how is this going to impact asset allocators? Um, you know, how, how would people like, like us at Parkview as a as an asset allocation team, be able to make best use of, of machine learning. I mean, is this something that is going to, you know, completely overhaul our strategic asset allocations? Or is this something that is best used as a tool for helping us better, make better tactical decision making? Um, am I going to become redundant? I think this is a key question for me too. Not at all. Not at all. The, the human component is more important than ever because we have tremendous amount of data and we need to make sense of it. Um, just like uh, you know, the CIA didn't become redundant just because algorithms were able to scan the whole internet. Not at all. Yes. You, need, you, need, you need more analysts than ever, right? Yeah. You become more effective uh, because you don't need to do all the manual work that uh, algorithms can do. And in of that course. way, humans can specialize at what we really are good at. Mm. And what hum we humans are really good at is looking at patterns on a small data sets where we learn, we are able to connect the dots after very few examples, mm -hmm. right? But when we are dealing with extremely high dimensional uh, data sets, uh, where we have many different dimensions and many possible combinations, machines help us a lot because they narrow down the search. So that's where machine learning becomes extremely helpful um, for, for analysts, right? Will it change the industry? It's already changing the industry. And this is only the beginning. I think what we are going to uh, witness over the next 10 years is that um, we are, the use of alternative data sets is going to, be, to become commonplace. And asset allocation decisions are not going to be just a function of correlations and expected returns. That was very good in the 1960s and in the 1970s, but today we have access to so much more information than just time series of returns. So mm -hmm. the answer is to utilize all of this technology and um, utilize the wealth of information that allows us to make more informed decisions. It's interesting. So, so in a way, it is impacting both the strategic and tactical, both at the same time. Absolutely. And let me give you an example of the two. For the strategic asset allocation, you want to take into account more information that just returns. For instance, you want to take information about are these two companies uh, sharing um, the same uh, supplier? Are they part of the same supply chain? 
Are they competing? Uh, do they have competing products in the same market? Do they have? Do they share the same investors? Are they in, uh, trying to launch the same uh, patent and commercialize the same technology? So there are many, many different sources of information that allows you to produce a, a knowledge graph. So in the past, the correlation matrix was our knowledge graph. If two things move together, they are probably connected somehow. That was the, the idea. But the reality is that that's very backwards looking. It takes a long time for correlation to uh, estimate that two variables are somehow connected. And even if two, if two variables are correlated, it could be for spurious reasons. So that's where utilizing a structured data allows you to form a knowledge graph that is useful for strategic asset allocation. And for tactical asset allocation, and structured data also helps us because it allows us to now cast Rather than predict, let's measure, right? When we go to the doctor, the doctor is not telling you, oh, you know, I'm worried because you may uh, have this or that disease in six months. Uh, that's, not how doc that's not how medicine works. You go to the doctor with some symptoms, and the objective of the doctor is to um, identify the condition as soon as possible and put you on a treatment, right? It's, and we have to make investment less speculative. Rather than this or that may happen, how about this is happening, let's react and let's uh, adjust before we have to bear all of the consequences of this new situation. So Marcus, you argue that certain strategies will only work some of the time and that investors should be tactical in switching between these different strategies. This is intuitively appealing if the right quantitative support is available but how would you go about investing in this way practically, given that many of the strategies that are currently available to allocators and to individuals do not allow for the necessary liquidity? Very good. Uh, look, let me give you an example. And this is just an example um, of, of a, a very simplified example of an extremely uh, complex topic. Suppose that you observe two kinds of regimes in the economy, uh, risk on and risk off. Right? Sometimes you are in a situation where investors have appetite for risk and sometimes investors are extremely defensive like what happened in February, March. Um, well, there are some strategies that are successful in a, in a risk on environment, like for instance, uh, uh, several um, risk factor strategies utilizing alternative data sets, et cetera. But there are other strategies that, are, that work better in a panic kind of uh, strategy, there are uh, situations that's uh, more defensive strategies. Um, and uh, so for instance, uh, strategies that benefit from uh, heightened volatility. Um, so you have these two portfolios in place, right? A portfolio built on strategies that are uh, favored by risk on environments and strategies that are favored on risk on uh, risk of strategies. And now, you use now casting to estimate the probability that you are in one scenario or the other. And therefore you deploy a combination, an ensemble of the two portfolios. What this means is that on a daily basis, you are able to nudge the portfolio towards one extreme or the other. You become very dynamic. And as a result, you don't need to make a binary decision 
cover or or attack, right? You are all the time in a in a quantum uh, of the two. In in a in a probabilistic space, you are investing in the two scenarios at the same time. So this is a a way you can manage the tail risk in a much more effective than all the time paying for an extremely expensive insurance. So the main issue would be with strategies like tail risk investing, but strategies such as trend following, for example, uh, would they have a, would they have a place? Yes. So for instance, trend following a, a strategy is the kind of CTA uh, algorithms tend to be successful in, in situations of very prolonged sell-offs or, or, or extremely prolonged uh, rallies, right? And um, if you identify uh, a change to a regime where the market is going to experience, you know, is undergoing tremendous pressure, especially to the, to the downside, mm -hmm. um, th that, that's where you would put a trend-following strategies into the bucket of risk-off. Okay. You Fair deploy enough. them. For, and, and just to provide some evidence of that, some of the best performance for CTAs, uh, in particular trend following CTAs, occur in 2008, right? Um, mm -hmm. When the market uh, sold off. So th that's the situation where you want to, to put those strategies uh, to work. So, so the, the, the interesting takeaway, though, is that, is that what, in order to be able to invest in this way, what really matters is maintaining liquidity at all times. Yes, uh, to have the ability to, to move from one portfolio to the other. For, for, from one portfolio to another. And, and I think the, the challenge for a lot of asset allocators is that many of the strategies, uh, it's hard to get in. And once you're in, you can't really get out easily <laughs> without yes. considerable redemption periods. And so, and so being tactical, then you're, you're, you're constrained. Okay. But let me, that, that's, a, that's a good um, um, criticism. So that, let me provide you the uh, alternative example. It's not really a criticism. It's more like a caveat, right? So I gave you an example of uh, a strategy that, um, would benefit from this ability to identify a regime chain. And therefore, you can pivot from one ensemble of strategies to another ensemble of strategies. And, and I, I, my preamble was, well, this is just an example. Uh, there are many other uh, ways in which you can implement this idea. The other way in which you can implement this idea is you have your risk on a strategy which is really the default. Most of the time, the market is in a risk-on environment. Risk-off environments are, um, are exceptions, uh, very temporary, uh, very short-lived typically. So one possibility is you, you have your risk-on portfolio, and when there is the time that you have to move into the risk-off environment, that's when you buy protection. But you don't buy protection all the time. I mean, paying insurance Paying for travel insurance where you're not traveling makes no sense. So why would you pay a lot of insurance for that you don't need? Well, your answer might be, well, but you don't need when you you don't need that you <laughs> that you need it until you need it. <laughs> but that's the point of now casting. You can actually know when you need it. Uh, yes. Uh, and 
at least you can know it soon enough, right? Soon enough, you know that um, you are going to, to require a risk-off a risk strategy, and that's when you buy protection. But the soon enough, actually, this is, this is an important part. The soon enough, you basically, the, the time between, between sensing something and taking an investment decision is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And as machine learning develops, this is, this is what, what, you know, this time will go to naught, right? I.e. the mm -hmm. markets will become more efficient. And, and this is indeed what, what people like yourself have been doing. I mean, by, by developing strategies that exploit inefficiencies, you're, you're, you're basically making the market more and more efficient. So, so in a way, and, and you were saying earlier on, you talked about macroscopic and microscopic alpha. This is, by definition, diminishing. All of alpha is diminishing and going to to not is it not i mean would would you know how for how long will we be able to to enjoy this sort of period of 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 alpha i don't think that's the case let me bring a counter okay. argument let me bring a counter argument um if you have uh, limited access to information then yes technology allows you to mine these uh, enclosed limited data set in a more effective way and therefore markets become more efficient. Under that view, I would agree. The, um, the criticism to that view is that in fact, our data sets are expanding. And the more data sets are expanding, noise becomes smaller. There is more noise that becomes signal. You see, the point is that mm -hmm. the reason we are, Markets are tremendously uh, um, uh, arbitrary at this point, right? They're, they're, we cannot forecast the return of the next day by any means, right? Um, uh, and with the right amount of information, once we have access to additional data sets, a lot of the noise becomes uh, now um, a signal. We can mine it. And that's essentially what has happened over the past five years. Um, Alpha has become bigger. There is more information that, that we can mine. They are, they are more predictable. Now, your argument is going to be now, uh, I guess, well, but that, that's, that, 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 that means that markets become more efficient. Yes, but there will be new data sets. There will be more information. And wealth continues to be created, which creates in, in itself more, uh, a bigger pool um, to, to mine. So as a result, in fact, what you can see is something very similar to what happened to gold mining. Um, over the past 4,000 years, humans have, been, have become really good at mining gold. And around the end of the 19th century, gold was essentially depleted, right? Uh, after all the gold rushes of, you know, all the gold that the Egyptians and Mesopotamia and uh, later Rome and, and the Middle Ages and then of course, the Spaniards uh, taking gold from America and then the California gold rush and Alaska. And there were all these gold rushes. And it appeared that gold had been mined. Macroscopic gold had been mined. Here's a statistic to keep in mind. Over the past 50 years, more than half of all the gold mined throughout history has been extracted. In 50 years, 
more gold has been extracted than in 4,000 years. Gold today is more abundant than ever, and we're becoming better and better at it. Uh, mines that produce four grams per ton of earth move are economic. And then it will be three grams uh, per, per, uh, per ton, and then even less and less and less. So in the end, what I'm telling you is that, um, and why? Because chemistry allows us, and chemistry is our data, you see, we, uh, our, our, our machine learning our ability to move all of this immense amount of information. And markets are far from being perfectly predictable. So the day that we can predict next day's returns, I will say, yes, that's the end of it. We are so far away from that. You know, we, we think in terms of market information being somehow finite, but, but indeed it is, it is, it may well be infinite. Yes. Well, well, not infinite, Look, but you know, it's it's expanding, right? For 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 all purposes, it's for all practical terms, it's almost infinite, because wealth will continue to be expanded. And how is this wealth going to be managed? Well, there will be errors and mistakes that can be mined. So this is not a closed circuit, right? It's not a it's not a, a given tool a given pool where we have this number of you know, this amount of fish and the better we, we become at fishing, eventually we will run out of fish. No, it, it's an open pool and, and, uh, and the fisheries are out there and the amount of, of fish out there in, in the ocean is nothing compared to what is in, in our open pool, right? So uh, one comment that I think may be useful to your audience and mathematics is becoming very important and so is the human skill we're going towards an industry that requires more and more specialization, division of labor. Um, in the past, um, the, in, the investment firms tend to um, value enormously the, the figure of the generalist, the person who would be you know, good at, at math but, and good at analysis and good in, in, in social skills. It was the whole combo. And... At that point in time, it made sense because the amount of data was limited, the computing power was limited. Um, but today, we have tremendous amounts of data, tremendous amounts of computing power. We, we are going towards an industry that requires a specialization. So what we need is individuals, some individuals who know a lot of math, but perhaps not so much about the market. Other people who are extremely knowledgeable of the market and the players and, the, and what motivates them, etc. Other individuals who are ex extremely uh, knowledgeable about uh, testing ideas and coming up with, with uh, thinking critically, etc. So there are all of these roles that are expanding. And as a result, now what we need is, is um, we're going towards an industry that will be um, um, populated by interdisciplinary teams, right? And there is a space for everybody. It's not that one people, one sort of people is going to be replaced with another people. It's, what will mean is that uh, our challenge will become, uh, will become more focused so that we can master this particular area of domain expertise, working with other people who are master in other skills. So, in the end, um, this, this is what will allow us to mine this microscopic alpha. It's very interesting. And what the, the implication of that for, for 
for asset allocators like ourselves who are who are allocating into various funds and different different types of strategies if if that is indeed the case then then we actually need to think of within within each type of strategy you know the size of the team matters right and the bigger and more diverse the team is is what matters would you more would you share more that? diverse yeah, more diverse. I don't think it's necessarily about uh, the the size, size of the team, but but diversity. And and so what I would like your audience to understand is uh, the the rationale that oh this firm is not a quant firm, therefore uh, is not useful, etc. That's a flawed argument. The important is is this uh, firm um, that is not quant uh, working with other individuals who are quants are is their cooperation are they using input are they using the input from a quant analysts to inform their decisions so we are going towards interdisciplinary teams that's the point and there is a space for a, a wide range of skills and a specialization uh, within the industry and and that's what is going to make it richer more efficient more informed for a lot of investors Narratives are very powerful. And so if we think of somebody as successful as Warren Buffett in the past, right? There was a story. There was an investment philosophy and a story. So fast forward to 2020, what would replace that type of story that you can build around? Warren Buffett uh, is an investment genius. And um, he uh, was able to perform amazingly well uh, in a situation where data was extremely limited. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's, that was his skill, to be able to make informed decisions in the absence of uh, a meaningful amount of information, his vision. But today, we, we do have that information. You see, today, there is no need for making these sort of um, amazing guesses. We don't need to guess so much. And that's where we can utilize data to make more informed decisions. So the market has changed um, and the game has changed in a sense. Uh, uh, well, that's good news for investors, right? Because that means that there are more opportunities there are uh, we, you can be more dynamic you can be more more tactical you can um, identify earlier on when a problem arrives when uh, and and you can um, make more informed decisions so this is this is the evolution of uh, every field right uh, when you think of medicine um, there was a time in in not very long ago when um, you know, many people would go to a hospital and they would die of a different condition than the one that they went to the hospital to, to be treated. And medicine, yeah, medicine evolved and then doctors realized that they should wash their hands, right? The, the notion of microbes was not there. We're talking about really um, the 19th century, right? And then antibiotics were developed and today medicine is a data-driven science. It's all about data, right? You look at the, the journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's, it, it's a statistics journal. It is really about 
uh, of course, doctors contribute a lot to make sense of, of all this data, but it's really in a statistic journal. And finance is undergoing the same uh, transition. So yes, look, um, uh, Warren Buffett uh, is an, was an amazing, and is an amazing investment genius. Um, today, thankfully, we have access to data and we need to analyze this data just like doctors have evolved to become in a sense, um, uh, analysts uh, of, of medical statistics. Always fascinating to talk to you, Marcus, and all, you always leave us with a lot of food for thought regarding what all of this will mean for, for our industry and how it will change going forward. Thank you very it's, much. It's always <laughs> a pleasure, my dear friend. <laughs>